Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. Today we're on Zoom, and it's going to sound a little bit different from normal. Um, more organic, shall we say. I'm Barry Adamson, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. My guest today is the great Barry Adamson, who is speaking from... Where are you speaking to us from today? I'm uh, Brighton by the Sea. Very nice. And uh, a little introduction. Barry is a musician a composer, a writer, a photographer, and a filmmaker. He grew up in Manchester's Moss Side, taught himself to play bass overnight before joining Post-Punk Progressives magazine. After an astonishing three years playing with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, he launched his solo career with the great Moss Side story, arguably the first ever soundtrack to an imaginary film. And he has subsequently worked on films by Derek Jarman, David Lynch, Oliver Stone, and Danny Boyle, as well as charting his own path as an architect of pop noir and paranoid funk on solo albums, such as the recently reissued Oedipus Schmiedipus, plus Stranger on the Sofa and Back to the Cat, both released on September the 23rd. the suavely romantic inner moment of clarity from Barry Addison's semi-autobiographical 1995 album Oedipus Schmiedipus, originally released on Mute Records and recently reissued by Mute Records in July of this year. The record you've brought in to talk about today is Bernard Herrmann's soundtrack to Alfred Hitchcock's impressionistic 1958 psychological thriller Vertigo. It was originally released on Mercury Records in the US in 1958, but it was re-released in a significantly expanded form on Varese Saraband in 1996. Um, now, before we start, let's hear a little bit of the opening track, Great. right? the prelude yep. from the 1996 version of Vertical and Varese Saraband. It's conducted by Muir Matheson. I think we'll talk, maybe talk a little bit about him later. But I think it perfectly brings together the score's themes and colours, its eerie strangeness and its sweeping romanticism. So this is um, Prelude, Vertigo by Bernard Herrmann uh, from the 1966 reissue of Vertigo on the Razy Saraband. So let's just play a little of that and then we'll talk about it. first question is how did you discover the music of Bernard Herrmann? Um, I think it was 
probably through the through the film Taxi Driver. And uh, so there was a sort of uh, a populism about Taxi Driver. And it, uh, so uh, all of its other themes were, were, were sort of a, a front of the music. But then there was this thing about this score. And I read about um, the ideas in the score about, <clears throat> you know, the central character and, and the journey back from Vietnam to New York and then the sketch of New York, you know, so the situation and place. And I just sort of found that sort of hypnotic really. And I thought, I've got to know a bit more about this guy. So I went back and I saw, you know, that he was you know, Hitchcock's main composer on <clears throat> a lot of stuff. And, and uh, everybody of course knows Psycho with the, the you know, the, the, the violin, uh, craziness that goes on during the, the, the murders and so I thought you know lo looking a bit further I uh, picked up somewhere and I just just this that little opening bit that you played there um you know I, I'd read about the fact that um Bernard Herman was was brought in and told that like he, um, the, the work he did for Orson Welles is very much about character whereas Hitchcock said that you know if you can make it like uh, about situation and place and build up the tension and i so from a composer's point of view as well and like a hungry to learn point of view as well to hear the the way you went about that and knowing that the situation and the place is san francisco which is very up and down and so he puts together this this idea it's called contrary motion where the notes go up and they go down at the same time so you go, da, 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 and that in itself creates this slightly dizzying effect. So straight away, you're in the film. And then because of like you, uh, from the intro that you gave, the, the whole idea of the, of the romanticism and the, you know, the dream-like strangeness and the doomed, you know, laden desire, it then sort of drops these four big notes, which we come out of this pit of desire into this incredible theme. So when I discovered it, that was it for me. I kind of quickly decided that's that's probably the best thing that's ever been written on the film. <laughs> How old would you have been when you discovered it? Well, Taxi Driver was, uh, was what? 76? So I, I mean, I'd say it was a bit after that. So somewhere in the 80s and somewhere possibly before I was thinking about becoming a composer myself, you know, and gathering so, sort of information. Is that something I could possibly do one day? Because I'm very drawn to all these things that are going on in film. So it would have probably been around there, you know, but there's lots to sort of digest really. And, you know, and this, this is a film and a score that demands that, that you listen and watch it over and over and over and over and over again, just to sort of get out of your own vertigo within what's on the way the way Hitchcock brilliantly sets it up. I should probably at this stage maybe give people a bit of background. I'm, you know, I'm I'm assuming that any right-thinking listener to the Mojo Record Club will have seen Vertigo, but just in case they haven't, uh, it stars James Stewart as a former police detective, John Scotty Ferguson, who's retired from the force after developing acrophobia and vertigo. Um, and he's hired by his friend, Gavin Esler, as a private investigator to follow his wife, Madeline, who's played by Kim Novak, who's behaving very strangely. And Scotty gradually starts to fall in love with Madeline, but all is not what it appears. And I'm going to stop there because I'm going to because I'm going to say that if you haven't seen Vertigo, that's all you need to know. Well, that's your entry point, really, on, on what's going on, because 
even by saying all is not what it seems, you know. And I mean, Hitchcock is credited with being the master of suspense, but I think he blows that idea completely out of the water here by taking on all these other central core themes, you know, which I think is the ill-perceived purity of love, which is heartbreaking, which is what everyone's doing in the film. You know, you've got Jim, Jimmy Stewart following a woman who's watching herself, watching another woman. I mean, it just goes on and on in this spiralling thing, which leads to this dizzy heights of spiralling. It's definitely a, an amazing film to watch. From the perspective of a composer, it's amazing that Hitchcock gave Herman an incredible amount of artistic control. I mean, like kind of the notes on the script say things like, all this will naturally depend on what music Mr. Herman puts over the sequence. And, you know, that is, must be kind of an incredible, I kind of, I guess, a mix of kind of freedom, but also fear for a composer. The idea that the, the director is basically saying, you know, okay, Barry, okay, Bernard, it's up to you now. I think there's a knowing in their relationship, and I think there's a depth of understanding. And I think Herman kind of outshines Hitchcock, if you like, because he know he seems to understand the depth of what's going on. I mean, you know, the Scotty characters put under this well. I'd like to refer to as a trance of mystification and it carries on all the way through the film and and then particularly in the in the extended version of the score he has to sort of weave together almost like a symphonic idea about what that means and it's true he can he can let sort of like you know um Scotty like follow follow Madeline for a bit but it's it's Herman that gives us that sort of internal world agony of like you know of that sort of obsessive trance that he's under um, and the way he weaves that together and i think what that's an act of trust and i had it recently with some that worked on you know it's like well you know depending on what you do we can do this so you feel that that, that that you know the directors and the producers know that you know and they're happy to let you have a bit of the guidance have a bit of the maze on scene as it's as it is to to direct the film in in the way it wants to go there because the film is ultimately you know the royal <laughs> the royalty of the you know and we're all working towards that so i think that sounds to me like not so not so fear laden i think it's more i think it's that's more of a that would give you an impetus to work in the way that you understand the work and want to bring what you can bring to the table yeah the, i mean the word you used was trust which i think is an incredibly important and it's astonishing re-watching the film. I re-watched the film last night and you realize how much of the character's psychology, their tortured psychology is coming from Herman. It's not coming from the script. The exactly. stuff that you, the emotional stuff that you're picking up on mm. when you kind of, you know, I turned the volume down and said, okay, what am I getting from this? Just, you know, watching the characters and then turning it up and just getting, cause there's obviously there's passages in, in the film where Hitchcock steps back completely and there's no dialogue and he just leaves it to Herman to score the emotions almost. I think he must have known he could do that. Yeah. To put that note in the script. Yeah. Because he, that's, that's the third dimension, if you like, as I refer to it, of the, because it's, it's not character anymore. It is that thing that we mentioned at the beginning of, of uh, situation and, and tension building within. So it's not about the character. Da, 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 da. You know, it's more like what's going on underneath. Yes, it's kind of like an inner turmoil almost. 
Yeah, which this film is all about. Yeah. There's one other th little thing I wanted to talk about, which is kind of a much more of a technical thing. One of the famous sequences in Vertigo is where Hitchcock creates the sensation of Vertigo using a forward dolly and a reverse zoom. But I thought it would be nice to listen to what Herman does sonically to create that effect, because it's almost as if he's doing as much, if not more than Hitchcock, to create that kind of eerie, sickly feeling. I'll just play a little clip of that. So what is he doing there, Barry? I mean, I can hear sort of overlapping harps, there's, there's brass, there's woodwind. I mean, how do you even begin to conceive of that? Well, I think it's, it's a bit like um, throwing in the kitchen sink and, and then <laughs> what works and what's... It's, and it's funny listening to that then, because it sounded like um, a remix almost, what we would call a remix. So you've got the... The da -da 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 -da, which is the, the central love theme, the Wagnerian thing, but then there's all, also the, the sensations and the effects of da, da, and then the swirling hearts. But it sounds to me as well like it's, it, it is overlapped and it's edited together slightly as well. So there's an edit that, so it's like cut in to, to a theme that's already existing. Yeah. So that your forward dolly, and then. That's your, that's your reverse pullback shot. And then the swirling harps are kind of the glue of the sickening sensation, I think. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Barry Adamson. You've lectured on Vertigo in the past. Oh, what, I have. what do you think you can teach people from this score? And what do you try to teach people from the score? I just think that whole idea of being so inside the film that it's it's glued together uh, throughout the film, and it's a bit of a, a composer's masterclass, really. I mean, I feel like I happened on it as like a fan and came out having to watch it to, to talk about it at the time. It was a very long time ago. I thought I worked out. It was something like 30 years ago at the BFI. Wow. And, but I was talking, you know, I was just talking. I mean, to me, it was a dazzling revelation, for example, right from the off, that whole contrary motion thing and the, the you know, and, and just doing what, what even musicians do now, which is like, you know, rip, rip something off, which is like, let's, what should we do for that? Bit? Oh, right. Well, there's the loving death theme from Wagner. Let's remix that a little bit and put, put our own twist on it and extend it as a metaphor for this whole thing, you know, for the, the, the trance and also the thinking you can bring somebody back into being. And all of those things are kind of going on at the same time, as well as Herman's just sensitivity to the, the, the inner world to write that way is incredible and i i think that influenced me very much in when it, it came to work, work with david lynch you know i'm not a classical composer but i understand sonically what these things do and so i was able to construct you know beds of, of scariness and this kind of thing based on really 
the teachings of Herman in, in a way. That he's kind of putting these uncertain and new emotions inside you with the music. And exactly. you're, so you're, you're right there with James Stewart's character. You're, and there's a sense when you're watching Vertigo that these are kind of like kind of, you know, when you're in the first throes of love for the first time and you think, I've never felt this sensation before. That, what is it? That's what Hitchcock's doing. That's what Hitchcock's selling us. And the whole film, I think, is based on the idea of avoiding that avoiding that sort of purity because to, to if you the vertigo is the fear it's not the fear of falling i think it's the fear of falling in love which is why the title sequence is eyes and mouths and you know it's nothing to do with like and so but but if you lose it you will lose it forever yeah and ill ill perceived purity thing that we all have as human beings hitchcock knows this and spends all that time avoiding it like so that we can enjoy this de delicious torture which is what it's a brilliant brilliant point you make and it's almost like because i was i wanted to actually play a little clip of the transformation scene which uses which quotes and we would say these days samples um you know lieberstadt you know the, the sort of tristan and his alt sort of love theme but in a way kind of makes it sick. There's something sickly or sick about it. So let's just play a little bit of that. And um, I'm going to do it from the where the door opens. Vertigo by Bernard Herrmann uh, from the 1966 reissue of Vertigo on Verezi Sarabande. Now, I was watching you while that, that was playing, and the fantastic thing is, and you were doing something, and I never noticed that you, it was basically you doing something. You're almost kind of showing me what Herman was doing in the yeah, sense yeah. that he, he was, there's an advance in the music that mirrors um, the, character, the way that Kim Novak is moving towards James Stewart in the scene. Yeah. And so as well as kind of bringing in the, you know, the Wagner theme, there's this kind of almost slightly sinister advance, but exactly. also a sickly quality to it, which is the, the scene is lit. If you, when you watch the film or if you've seen the film, the scene is lit in this kind of sickly green light. I mean, it, you know, it, it is uh, necrophiliac in nature and, um, and it is amazing that the out of the pit of desire, it gets surpassed and put into a place of omnipotence because he's gone beyond, you know, what is possible within the human spirit and soul and everything. It, it, it's, I mean, that in itself is an extraordinary idea. And like you say, it's picks up and it's and what Herman does. And I'm sure Hitchcock relished that idea is, is he, he, he reaches the summit and then goes further and then goes a little bit further, which is what I was most there. And then even then another, for want of a better word, climax within the whole thing. And it is very, uh, it's very advanced in terms of like what the film, what the film's putting across 
and it's not in a, a you know a, a schlock horror way or anything like that it's from a human desire way you know which i think is extraordinary it's absolutely it's about going beyond isn't it yeah. it's kind of like in terms of going beyond in terms of desire because he does yeah. he fall he falls in love with a dead woman from the past you yeah. know but it it also turns yeah absolutely and the music is about that that sense of going beyond i've got mm. a little bit um little clip from bernard herman himself talking about um his what he saw as the role of his music okay, cool just play that brilliant Hitchcock, one has to create a landscape for each film, whether it be uh, the rainy night of Psycho or the turbulence of a picture such as Vertigo, as against in Citizen Kane, a picture of people within a specific time and uh, how they felt against external events. I mean, of uh, attitudes of hatred, love, revenge. Film music must supply what actors cannot say. The music can give to an audience their feelings. It must really convey what the word cannot do. If you're dealing with an emotional subject, uh, this is the complete purpose of a film score. But if you're dealing with a picture such as, well, a Hitchcock film or anyone's film or by anyone of enormous skill, and taste in the making of a film as a film. I think we kind of both noticed the key yeah. point there is is what the service of the music is to the film in terms of uh, bringing out the emotion from uh, that, that the characters can't speak of. Yeah, saying what the characters can't say. I also, going back to that trust thing, I, I kind of realised that I put a note somewhere that this was uh, Hitchcock's 45th film. And I think your confidence by then in... in you know, in what you what you do and who you bring on would be, and you know, he he always had a sort of huge investment in the in the commercial ideas of getting things right because it was a lot of it was done with his own money. But I think maybe we should talk a little bit about Herman's attitude because you know I said that Hitchcock gave him free reign, but that's kind of what Herman expected when he worked on a film that you wouldn't mess with him and that you wouldn't edit him and that you'd kind of give him the composer's equivalent of final cut mm. i think that i think the, the the big guys like that's that's part of their deal i mean i can remember i think you know from stories i've heard about angelo badlamenti and working with david you know david lynch it's very much a similar thing you know you're not there just to sort of pussyfoot around you know you're there that your art and your work and your take on things each film brings its own uh, set of nuances uh, with it, and you find those within the work. But that's part, you know, you that's part of your thing. So I think I think then as well uh, by that stage in, in you know you're in there and you're doing your job and you're standing up for what you do. And I think that's the, an important thing for uh, for a composer to do. And I think at that point uh, as well in com film history and composing history, you know, the, the, the composer was seen uh, uh, having a much more important role than, than in previous times, I think. Absolutely. I'm, but I'm going to disagree with you slightly, Barry, because um, I don't know if you've ever heard it. Uh, when um, Paramount heard, oh, I'm going to stop actually while the fire engine goes past. Um, <laughs> when Paramount heard Bernard Herrmann's theme for Vertigo, they weren't happy with it. 
and they suggested um, another theme. And I don't know if you've you've ever heard it, but I think um, probably you might have done. But I think the listeners might like to hear it anyway. I'll play a little bit of it, and then I'll explain what it was. It's round and around on this merry-go-round. I go. That was Vertigo, sung by Billy Eckstein, mm-hmm. and ri- written by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, and released on Mercury in 1958. So it actually came out, and the that same. was what, and yeah. that was what Paramount wanted as uh, as the film's theme. Well, they were ahead of the game there in terms of like sticking pop onto art. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But in that, in this case, I, I, I'm glad it sort of things turned out the way they did. <laughs> so am uh, I. I was only, I was only playing when I said that I preferred it. No, I, I know. Sure. But <laughs> I know. But it's uh, it's. I think that's that's being ahead of the game in that way. I think that's what happened more and more. You know, what is the popular hit of the day, and how can we stick it onto this film to sell the film? Absolutely. Uh, and that's kind the of, you know, next, that's the next phase of composition. I think from the late 70s, mid 70s onwards. And I think composers started to started to bridge that a little bit. Like Morricone would have like an orchestra and a combo so that they could do like a pop thing almost and then do a, a you know, a symphonic thing because the two the two were starting to merge together. And I think it's it's something that um it's something that Bernard Herrmann recognizes that he couldn't do. And I think that's yeah. part of his dispute that he had yeah. with, with Hitchcock over Topaz. He says, why are you getting me in to do this? It's not what I do. And I yeah. think when Scorsese got him in for Taxi Driver, he got him in expressly because he knew that it wouldn't have a modern sound. It mm. wouldn't sound like a modern soundtrack. But at the same time, what he wanted to hear was the theme from Psycho. The, the three note that plays right through Psycho as a as a almost a point of um, arrival for the Travis Bickle character, but then he gets all this other brilliant stuff. Yeah, but it's true. And 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 now, of course, we're in a situation where we can't do what Herman did, you know, because. But the, I noticed the other day um, you can buy a, a sampled orchestral. I think it's about five hundred quid. Of, Ber- of Bernard Herrmann uh, uh, arrange, it's the way he arranges instruments together. It's a very particular thing. Morricone kept his arrangements in a safe. Nobody could go near them because, you know, even the way you put the clarinets and the flutes together with certain things and the way you write for them is very much your own thing. And now you can so you have a world of Herman that you can you can have access to because it's it's difficult to do unless you've been trained in this in the the world of the chamber and the symphonic and all the rest of it because we're very kind of pop orientated now so and a bit of jazz you know you can do that you can get you can make a score atmospheric and you can use beautiful electronics you see that's what we've got that's absolutely fantastic that they never had even though Herman could could get together an electronic weird sound, you know, through classical instruments. I mean, that's kind of related because obviously Herman didn't conduct this score because there was a musician strike on in Hollywood at the time. So the film, yeah, the film was made during the Hollywood musician strike. So it was first conducted in London 
by mm. Matheson. And then <laughs> when his Sinfonietta found out about the LA musician strike, they all went out on strike in sympathy. <laughs> And Matheson had to finish it in Vienna. So it's even more remarkable. This isn't Herman conducting this yet. It sounds, you know, the, 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 the music that you're hearing is so yeah. ingrained with his style. Yeah, I know. He's, he's the king of the uh, eight French horns, apparently. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that to get a certain sound, he put together like, so that, that, that's probably all written on the page, you know, and, and Muir Matheson has to sort of weave, you know, weave his way through all that to actually get the right kind of sound. But I think probably I'd imagine that, you know, he's so obsessive as the film that he's writing about yeah. and wouldn't let anything sort of get past him, you know, make sure it was meticulously laid out. I mean, it, it just shows you now how much of a difference, you know, there's no, you can't sort of, you know, call him on Zoom and go like, well, could you, could you make the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> make the woodwinds a bit bright, you know, um, incredible feat to do that and not be there even. That's an amazing point that you make and it may be a nice point to end on before we, we move on to talking about the new music this week, which is that what's coming through in that score isn't just Scotty's obsession, but Herman's obsession as well. He isn't just scoring for the characters in the film. There's something of his own character coming through as well, obviously. I think he has to have an innate understanding of what's going on in the film in order to write about it. I can remember when I, I think that 30 years ago when I gave that talk, the talk I was in the middle of a trance of mystification in myself and the words just sort of flew out of me. It was a language that I'd never understood before and that I was able to articulate because it was the very thing that was sort of happening to me. All these ingredients and all this weirdness and near fatal car crashes because of being driven by something else and stuff like that going on i think you would have had to have an incredible understanding i mean herman's like i saw this thing with herman where he he'd say like well you know you get an oscar you do and then at the next day you come home and you just sit at the piano yeah, like yeah. He, he, the whole thing of like of being a, a composer was, was was paramount you know they take all the emotion out take all the, the but there was a weariness about him there was a there was a kind of worn thing of understanding emotion from the inside out which i think is quite tormentous as it is you know it's worth saying at that point that um it's something that you write about brilliantly in your um, autobiography which came out last year was it now as above so below i mean one of the great recent music autobiographies if anyone's listening to this who has not picked up a copy and you want to read you want to hear you want to read a musician write yeah. about those passions that drive you and even when you don't know what they are driving you it's 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 absolutely fantastic book barry thank you you're listening to the mojo record club with me barry adamson okay um barry what new music have you been listening to this week yeah i'm terrible me because i'm lazy and what i do is i'll find i i listen a lot to um like french radio and, and uh there's a station called FIP, and they, so they oh they FIP's just, great. They send a play, you know. They send a playlist, which which will you know, um, you can listen to Roy Ayers and Flying Lotus and Andrew Bird and uh, new and old and, and a mixture of things. So what I'll do is keep that going and tick off like favorites to to make a, a playlist out of and, and check out later um, while I'm doing things. So I kind of start the morning that way pretty much every day, and then if there's something in there that I feel I want to zoom in on, 
been a bit obsessed with Unloved at the moment. They've got a new album out, but I've gone back to the earlier albums and, um, and I've been listening to, to that work quite a bit because I think it's also, you know, of course, um, David Holmes being a composer himself yeah. and how he composes within the art of pop, yes. which is absolutely stunning, I've got to say. And what, what they do there, you know, and the singer Jay and like the way the voice and the, the songs come together and the themes again, which are very kind of Hitchcock-esque in, in their what's going on with with uh, the underneath of what's going on there. And I think obviously with David Holmes and uh, the other songwriter, being both being composers, they pull together a world of cinema within the songs, which I find enthralling to listen to. I sent you through a copy of the new um, McKay and McRaven album, In These Did Times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, what had you come across him before? I had, like, um, I think over the last two years, uh, Universal Beans had, had, been, had been a bit of a, a staple, especially when people were saying, like, oh, have you heard this? And you go, like, well, have you heard this? You know, because it's just, just something incredibly... Uh, the visionary about about it that, that, that that's enriched with with a, an older mind and an older soul and spirit and embracing uh, what's going on now with sampling and all the rest of it and has gone before and hip hop but in a seamless in, in a less obvious way than you would think you know and you, you'd be hard pushed to kind of see how the compositions so for me it feels like brand new composition on, a, on an old theme you know and you, you can you can kind of feel you know the the, the people of the past going like yeah go on because it's really it's really pushing it into into another place with sort of smatterings of alice coltrane and, and beautiful gracious stuff going on yeah absolutely and i think the new album does exact does more of that the i'll, I'll do you i'll give you uh, the listeners a little bit of a background he based this new album's assembled from studio and live sessions he yeah. was a Paris-born jazz percussionist, lives in Chicago. He's also an improviser and an architect of what he calls organic beat music, which is basically sampling and cutting up his own spontaneous improvised live recordings and, and adding beats kind of almost in a way as like a throwback to say someone like the, the late Jay Diller, you know, but, yeah. uh, but, but kind of with an, an awareness of improvisation and live music and the That's new cool. album the new album i think kind of moves away a bit from the more overt sort of hip-hop rhythms and self-sampling style into something more orchestrated and organic mm -hmm. and you can hear stuff in there's like west african drumming folk music there's morricone in there mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier but also yeah. i'm hearing like the herbie hancock's blue note recording stuff like empyrean isles and yeah. maiden voyage Yep. I mean, each of the tracks has a strange relation to it itself and each other, but in a freshly composed way as well. I think that the Morricone, like, I think this Dream Another is this track with these guitars going on, and then you get the calling, which is from another place, and then the, there's a lullaby, which is very uh, Alice Coltrane, but it's still, I think it's, I think that for me, it reaches a, a state of grace from all the other stuff that, that's been going up. Yeah, as you say, the more obvious, like, slightly heavier-handed, sample hip-hop beat stuff. He, he's able to sort of almost relax himself on that in a knowing confidence 
and pull something together which feels totally original but you can at the same time you you, you can like rely on each track and bathe in each track i think it's beautiful a really good example of that and i'll play a little um, little bit of that now is a track called the fours which uh, also came out as a little video as well by Michaela McRaven on his new album In These Times released by International Anthem Nonsuch and XL. So hard just just to listen to a little bit of that track because you're yeah. getting pulled in aren't you you're yeah. hearing the sort of Alice, as you said the Alice Coltrane style harp mm. and then you that little kind of hovering horn signature as well. That's the, the, the sampling process to cause a sort of hypnotic loop in there as well, which is not the obvious thing of, you know, a beat that just repeats. It's genius. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. His kind of skill in working with kind of loops and rhythms, but mm. taking it away from the obvious, taking, yeah. it away, taking it away from the beat, concentrating on, as you say, the sort of the hypnotic, something almost kind of spiritual to it. I think he's probably he's got a, a bunch of trusted improvisers around him as well who come in, you know, because you can hear in the playing the way they're feeling what's going on like a listener would, you know, it's really great. What's also, I think, striking about it is just like you can hear how well, as well miked everything is, you know, yeah. how yeah. everything, you know, seems to be positioned and how the, the you know, the instruments sound so live and in the room. Beautiful. I, I, I was listening to that. It's like a pristine kind of quality that sometimes can be a little off-putting. It can be a bit too like, ooh, because I remember there was a point in jazz when it was almost a turn-off because of that pristine, you, you know, he lost that sort of pushiness, the, you know, the, all that sort of stuff. And he's brought that around again by using the, the, the sampled world you know, of the bit, you know, bit crushing slightly with the pristine uh, of obviously evolution of recording now that you can do and fuse them together in a really great way as well. So you can, you're, yeah, you can see the person playing in the room and feel the, the energy around them and, and that kind of thing. It'd be interesting to see where he goes next because you want him to retain that rawness, don't you? You want him to retain that power and yeah, not yeah. go not go too far far down that kind no. of clean the clean lines. You know, there's sort of you know there's a prettiness there which yeah. I like in the context of this album, no, but I'm just album. a little bit worried about you know in terms yeah. of where he goes next. <laughs> it's like the Bowie thing, isn't it? Where he says, you know, if you start to get comfortable, then you need to sort of like push yourself a little bit more because you then, you know, you're in a place where nothing's challenging anymore and you can't, you can't create from that place. It's just, it just doesn't work. How familiar are you with the label that it comes from, um, International Anthem? Do you know nope. much about them? It's, I think you'd, you'd, I think it's worth kind of exploring. I think you'd really right. dig it. Just so, kind of go go online and check out the other stuff that they've done. It's kind of right. be your kind of thing, I think. Wow, oh, nice one, yeah. Right, the next record, or the one and the one I've been listening to this week is Suede's Autofiction. Now, mm. although Suede split up in two thousand and three and reformed yep. in two thousand and ten, 
to me, they've never felt like a Reformation act. I think largely because the standard of their music has remained so high. They've not kind of gone back to old back catalog stuff. And they mm. brought out an album in 2018, which I absolutely loved kind of cinema, cinematic kind of gothic horror. It was called The Blue Hour. Mm. And they've, he- they've held on to that kind of seedy grandeur, which is, I think is, you know, something that I think we, we you and I both like. And, mm. but they've matured lyrically, I think. And they describe this as their back to basics punk album. And I think mm. that kind of does it a disservice because it's, it's a back to basics punk album that's kind of beset by thoughts of aging, entropy, autobiography. And I can hear in it like bits of Interpol, Kitchens of Distinction, Psychedelic Furs, Television New Order. I can even hear a bit of magazine in there. And let's um, let's listen to a little bit of a track called 15 again, and then we'll uh, we'll have a little talk about it. Fifteen again by Swade from their new studio album Auto Fiction, out now on BMG. And the composers were Anderson, Oaks, and Codling. That little guitar at the start is very um, John McGeoch, I thought. Mm. Um, I didn't recognise that myself, but yeah, I <laughs> is I mean a Swade a Swade band that you followed down the years? I, I've not followed them really, no. But yeah. I, what you were saying in your intro, I think there's a, a wonderful single-mindedness that's not changed at all. It's like a kind of Brian Ferry-mindedness mm. of like, this is me, this is what I do, this is where I'm at, and there's nothing going to change ever. And I feel that, like, funny enough, I, I did find myself listening to it as a progression from the things I've heard before they broke up even though they you know it, nothing really has changed but and going back to to what we were talking about the studio polish and being able to use the studio like a weapon within what they're trying to do i felt i listened to this album at five o'clock this morning <laughs> and i just thought it was a it was it was a wonderful place to be stuck in almost a a, a kind of knowing prepubescence Mm. And and then, but then the only response to that is to try and achieve, and it's a bit like vertigo, the ill-perceived purity of love is to go for a kind of almost nihilistic, uh, uh, like self-adoration into self-love, but ultimately self-abandonment. Songs were riddled with that, you know, uh, drive myself home, black ice. And the brilliant, what, what what am I without you, I think is absolutely stunning. You know, I'll listen to that again and again and again, because it has, it feels to me like the apex of everything that, that lyrically he, uh, Brett's trying to get at and find within the work. And it's single-minded again, and it's the same themes again and again and again, polished to perfection. It's like a painter who just does one painting 
Yeah, it's, oh, it's some. It's all. It's as somebody says. It's the same song. You know, there are two different artists. There is the artist who will always try and write a different song, yeah. and then there's the artist or the painter or the novelist yeah. who will always do a variation on the same thing. They're all the more powerful for it, I think. Yeah. You know, I'm a bit of a cultural whore, and I'll kind of like just throw myself anywhere because I really like a load of stuff. So I'll imbue my own personality and work with with what I feel is going on around me. And I've always admired, I must admit, that sort of single-minded thing, that sort of like I'm working on this and I'm polishing this, and actually I'm sullying this and I'm making it this and I'm finding that you know. And I think this album really, really does that to, to brilliant effect. Yeah, I think you've, you've, you've put it brilliantly. And I think there's a there's a going on inside of that. There's a self-awareness and mm. there's, a, you know, there's an awareness that kind of go, singing, you know, being 55 and singing a song called 15 again. He's, a, he, you know, you can tell he knows that that's funny and also, yeah. but also that it's kind of tragic as well. But at, at the same time, revelate, you know, revelatory and celebratory, you know, all those things going on at the same time. Stuck as well. And yes, also stuck perhaps knowingly stuck in your limitation, mm. but then going like, fuck you. This, <laughs> you know, I'm good at this and I can, and I really know what I'm doing here. I, I can write a song called Black Ice, you know, driving over, you know, and knowing what, what that means and how that's going to lead to a self-destruction, how that's going to lead to the, you know, this thing within the work, but, and then the vanity of the thing, you know, the solid vanity, the whole kind of, that whole model, I think, which has been his and theirs since the beginning, um, is the thing that, that shines through, I think. I thought, I mean, I thought when I sent it to you that you would identify with that kind of, the sort of seedy noir elements coming through there's, it. There's things going on, which you don't really get, like, for the first time. You would have to kind of go in there, like, the layers of what's going on musically and some of the sounds, like, within the guitars, and, and, and the use of like, I think the punk element is that they've stumbled a, a, upon a great use of feedback and not caring about how that's, you know, controlled in any way. So I think that's the freeing aspect of the record that the, the guitars are sort of like pushing and pushing and new layers and textures are going on within the sound palette. I mean, that, that, that the clip you, you played from 15 again, you know, like, like you said, the magazine guitar then gets like trodden on by a dirty feedback, deep thing, you know, and that's going on all the time. And I really enjoy that about it as well. Absolutely, fantastic, great. I'm, re I'm really glad I sent you both those <laughs> albums. That's really good. Um, I need to ask you what you're up to next, Barry. What, what, are, you, what are your next plans? Yeah. I've been uh, chiseling away on my, on my own work and in there as well, I've been writing a score for a, a documentary about the Scala Cinema. Oh, which, fantastic. Fabulous, absolutely brilliant. And it was one of those trusting experiences which, that we talked about, really, which I felt all the more better for. I didn't really have to fight for very much. You know, they trusted where I come from. I think the filmmakers are, are absolutely fantastic. And I think it's going to be a, a real uh, a, a success, I, I hope. I think it's a great film to sort of revisit that time and and actually the the way they've explored it and gone into it and presented it, absolutely thrilling. Were you a Scala regular? I was. I don't know about regular. I think 
when I was compass mentis enough, I dragged myself there. And it was quite important for me. I think it was where I saw the man with the golden arm and, and thought, this is about to change my life forever. And I realized that it was changing my life forever in terms of this is what I, I you know, I, I need to do. I need mm-hmm. to write music. I need to express this idea in, in film and, and all the rest of it. And then, as they say, the rest of it is history. But yeah, wonderful project to 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 be given, if you like, you know, to sort of land on my lap. Um, it kind of completes that story a little bit as well for me, you know, just to remind you like where it comes from. So have you incorporated little elements of the man with the golden arm score into your own soundtrack? Like probably. like Tristan and his old into Vertigo? I really have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's there's one thing I think it's mainly it's the use of the end title out, but you, you'll you'll hear it and go, oh, here he is, you know. <laughs> Brilliant, fantastic, Barry. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you today. Um, you've been listening to Barry Adamson and myself, Andrew Mayo, with many thanks to my producer, Suze Bowerman. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. Look inside the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Brilliant. Now piss off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. Okay, we've done then. On the blink. <laughs>